A warm servus from Munich and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved, entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors, most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Thorsten Lambertus and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. Hello Ash, welcome. How are you today? Hey, good Thorsten. Lovely to be chatting with you. Awesome. So uh, are you still locked down in France currently? Yes, we are. Uh, I've got a 10 kilometer radius that I can't go out of uh, France from my house. Um, uh, a cop stopped me, asked me a question, but my colleagues in Switzerland can go to an outside restaurant. So this is great for us. So you have plenty of time for a chat uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, my kids are at school, so I can't speak. Wonderful. So Ash, um, first of all, tell us about you, who you are, and how you finally ended up in technology transfer. Um, so um, I'm originally uh, from India. I grew up in south of India in a place called Coimbatore. Um, but in India, you know, um, you either become a doctor or an engineer. Those are your two career choices. Um, if you don't become one, your parents kind of lose their social status rights. They kind of messed up. So I, I chose engineering. I did my undergrad in electrical engineering and, uh, ended up uh, going to the U S for my master's. Um, and serendipitously I, I got into tech transfer, right? And this was circa 2000 when the first, uh, you know, tech crash happened. Um, I just give you context. In my university, there were 80 Indian students alone in the master's program for electrical engineering. So the competition was insane. Um, the only job I could find was either a security guard at the university event center, and then I was a tutor for the football team, teaching math to undergrad kids. Uh, with the football team, and then serendipitously, I got into the tech transfer internship position. That was kind of the best job I could get. Then I fell in love with it, and so from there, uh, I've been in tech transfer for the last 15 years. Um, and I started at University of South Florida, went to UC Santa Barbara, moved back to India, and then three universities in Australia, and now I'm at Sun. So that's half a million miles in four seconds. Yeah, so you have definitely seen a lot of places, and I'm wondering what keeps you still motivated to stay in the tech transfer ecosystem. Look, so for me, I've always been fascinated by technology, right? So that's my guiding principle. And if you if you ask me what made me switch, um, I know innately I'm not the best engineer in the world, and I could see my fellow countrymen a few billions actually better engineers than I am. And I would never grow up to be a better engineer. So my edge was that I could speak, I could communicate, I can I can do storytelling. Um, so that was my edge. And then tech transfer kind of gave me that 
you know, um, a view of from tech side, from the business side of it, and the law perspective. So it's kind of the perfect marriage of three different things, and you kind of are generalist amongst those three. And it suited my character that I never wanted to deep dive into any tech, but I like to see where it can be used. And so um, that was that's what keeps me in this profession. That's what you know. I, I guess it's it's more like. Um, you know, Forrest Gump, you never know what you're going to get in a box of chocolate. So um, th- that tech uh, process of discovery um, is, is fascinating um, because no two days are are the same. I'm always curious what the next tech disclosure would be. That would be, well, uh, you know, changing the way we live. So that's that's what keeps me motivated. And I don't think I'll lose that love of tech app. This is very good to hear. And probably both of us share this passion for technologies and how to shape the future with them. But I think that there's a lot of young students out there and people who will become researchers or scientists or engineers who don't contemplate to become a technology transfer specialist when they are thinking about their career path. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, what kind of skills do you need in order to do this job well, which means to work inside a research organization and to make sure that technologies are applied in the market and transformed into great products and innovations. After we spoke offline, I still remember a conversation I had with my first boss, right? So I was doing a lot of legal contracts and you know, going through licensing agreement legalese and I'm like, God, our patent language, I'm like, this is not my forte. And she was a patent attorney, right? Her name's Mal- uh, Valerie McDermott. So I asked Valerie, why did you hire me? It's not a good thing to ask your boss. But anyways, I did. Um, and she said this, look, you have an engineering background. I can teach you patent law. I can teach you business deal structures because you follow an analytical approach. You know where the boundary conditions are and you'll have freedom to play around it. That I can teach you. But I can't teach you engineering. Right, i.e., I can teach an engineer patent law, but not a patent lawyer engineering. So that was kind of my aha moment in a way. If you think back at it and saying, what would I tell, you know, young folks thinking about tech transfer? Focus on what you're good at. I.e., you have a tech background, you're passionate about technology, <clears throat> and and you can look at it and saying, where can this technology be used? Because most people have a narrow view of where the application would be. And even, you know, and most tech transfer professionals who are in the field will also tell that the applications that you thought if the technology would be used to and where it ends up would never be the same. Um, You know, um, one example we're working on here at CERN um, is a fiber optic sensor, which, you know, was used at CERN because we need to have really low tolerances, measuring relative humidity between the detectors about a three millimeter clearance. So they said, okay, the fiber optics ones will be the ones that will fit in. And because, you know, there's a lot of radiation inside, so you can't have humidity in any of the detectors. And the initial applications were clean rooms, pharmaceutical manufacturing, food manufacturing, where relative humidity and temperature were something you need to control. Those applications are still valid, but, you know, where they, the interest from the market came was from construction. That was not something we even remotely thought about, right? Because when you cure concrete, it's an exothermic reaction. It creates a lot of heat and it expels water. When too much water goes out, concrete cracks. And CERN has about 57 kilometers of tunnels inside. 
and our new uh, future collider program is about building more tunnels. So concrete curing is kind of a big headache right now for the civil engineering group. So they've been talking with their inventor nonstop to saying, how can you work? How can you help? So this became more like a market pool. If you had asked me a month before and saying, oh, this looks like a good market application in construction, I can cross my heart and say, not, never cross their head. So those are the ones where I tell people, you know, you might have as much as knowledge in a particular industry, but once an application comes through, it'll always be left field that you never thought about. Um, so keep an open mind. Um, think about what you can do with the technology rather than saying, this is what it's supposed to be. So that would be what my you know takeaway over the years has been. Yeah, I can totally see that, that this is critical. And I think uh, in the recent years, there was a lot of focus on uh, methodologies like design thinking, lean startup, and in general, customer-centric and market pull, as you put it, kind of uh, innovation methodologies. Uh, but we see that, of course, this is the strength of any research organization. It comes up with new inventions, with new technologies. And uh, for each of them, there's there's a, um, there are various applications. Mm -hmm. So tell us exactly how do you do that when you're working with scientists at CERN? So how can you systematically try to assess what are different kind of applications? Uh, how do you find them? How do you assess them, whether they are worthwhile pursuing? Because I think it's, it's critical to find the right problem for the given kind of technology uh, and solution that you came up with as a scientist. Right. So look, for me, there's, you know, uh, I am super grateful for, you know, the lean launch pad, the business models, which kind of becomes tools that you can use it, right, um, to, to validate stuff early on. But, but the problem I see is also, you know, the unintended consequence of that is it's too much of that Kool-Aid going the other way that it has to fit to a problem where you, you constantly look at solving the problem. That's good on some, but it's not a catch-all i.e. what I mean by saying that is sometimes there are technical innovations that don't have a priority to compare to. Even if you go talk with a customer, identify your problem, jobs, gains, pains, all of that, it wouldn't fit that matrix. And that shouldn't be the only way to look at the tech valuation or tech fit. Um, you know, the, the story always that comes to be in my head is, is lasers, right? When lasers actually was invented only 60 years back when they came up everybody said oh it's a it's you know it's a light bulb searching for a dark room it's a nice cool stuff of amplifying you know and you know creating a photon by electrons jumping over whatnot but there was no practical application of a laser and then they gave it to the hands of doctors They're like oh my god you can you can uh, open a wound, cut something, suture it, brilliant. And then industrial applications came up and then we use it in every laser disc scanner. So the progression of that technology from a lab to market happened because it was given to the people who could play with it, right? Um, and then, you know, then you, you got uh, uh, ruby lasers, gas lasers, the whole thing happened after that. Similar example is MEMS, right? Uh, Microelectromechanical systems were fantastic as a lab output, but there was no practical applications of it, and it was almost a dead technology for some time till inkjet laser, uh, inkjet printers came up. And then, you know, it was used in for your airbags in cars, where it became a commodity. Now you can buy one for $10 and use it as an IMU in a drone. So, the way I see it is those tech 
has no comparison of what was used before, unless otherwise you package it and give it for people to play with it and create applications, it'll always be that scientific toy. <clears throat> so that's where I see the translation happening of, do you look at it as a tech that has got nothing comparable in it? Um, would it work? Can you replicate it? And then who will play with it to create applications? So if there are multiple players along the pathway, and if you can give it to folks to play with it, um, for example, the fiber optic sensors, if I had it all along and I never gave it to the civil engineers, then that application of looking for relative humidity in concrete curing would have not been obvious. So that's kind of the long way of getting my to my point. <laughs> Yeah, no. For, uh, I think it was it was a very good way to explain that, I, and I'm still wondering: um, Do you just stumble upon the right application? Do you stumble upon the construction kind of vertical where you're going to apply that at, in the very end, or is this something? So, how do you do that? How do do you train your researchers to go out and look at different verticals? Is that some something that is part of your job? So, how do you go about that at CERN? Right. So uh, at CERN, or at least in what we do within the startup unit at CERN, um, I always believe that you know the researchers are good at their, what they do, i.e. the technical part of it. Um, the tech transfer office, our job is to make sure to saying what is possible rather than saying this won't work, right? Um, I've seen over the years that um, you know, if it is a startup idea, if it is a committee or a jury that looks around and saying, oh, this won't work, Facebook will build it, you know, why would anybody fly a drone? Those kind of things get repeated. And the problem is, if you say that 100 times and just the failure rate of startups, you would be 90% correct, right? And that gets into a bias feedback. You say more often, you're correct more often, and then you repeat it. Um, I have that bias too, right? When you look at something like, oh, I've seen this, something like that, I, I fight that bias because I go and think, what if this works? What, you know, base assumption, this is fantastic, this will work. And then you build on it to saying, you know, and then argue with yourself to saying that, give me reasons why it shouldn't work. And then I fight that bias internally. Um, I, I always say this, imagine if a founder comes and tells me, look, I'm going to build a rocket system that's reusable, that'll go give the player load up, come back and land where it took off from. And just for giggles, it'll also land in a barge in the middle of an ocean. I guarantee you I'll not return the call because it's just super weird, right? Um, but that's what SpaceX has built and that's what they're doing fantastically, right? So I always looked that as my guiding started saying, would, would, what if I got the SpaceX pro proposal as a, 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 as a startup idea, right? Um, I don't know enough to know whether it'll work or not. So it's always good to have a network of people to bounce off ideas because I know 10% of something and there's a lot more of stuff that I don't know. So to answer your question, how do I do it? When it's something which is, which is you know, after initial triad saying, oh, this looks really out of the blue, I do ask another opinion. Send it to somebody in the network and say, hey, what do you think with, with consent of the inventors? Because there's a lot more smart people in the world and if you are the smartest in the room you're in the wrong room <laughs> very good way to put it uh, and, and by the way i'm not sure how sorry, sorry to interrupt that's not my code that's richard feynman uh um, if, i would really recommend young folks to re listen to richard feynman uh, a massive huge influence on me but anyways sorry to interrupt
Very good. Thank you for the recommendation. And uh, I'm not I'm not sure how familiar everyone is out there with how CERN works and what CERN actually is. Maybe you can talk a little bit about CERN and uh, the tech transfer office and uh, how you generate spin-offs from there. Yep. Uh, so um, CERN is uh, host the world's largest machine, the Large Hadron Collider. It's large because it's 27 kilometers in radius. Hadrons because we have protons and ions that collide and they belong into the hadron category and collider because we've got two beams going in the opposite direction and they collide at four points underground 100 meters down the earth. And the fundamental reason why we do it is to understand the, the, uh, the particle structure of what our universe is made of. So CERN's existence is to maintain the infrastructure so physicists all around the world can perform experiments questioning the basic fundamentals of a universe, right? So that's our main purpose. And so LHC is not the only accelerator we have. It's an accelerator complex. Uh, there's multiple boosters which feed into the LHC. So it's a massive complex of, um, um, of accelerators at CERN. Now, two things. One, in our constitution of CERN, when it was done in 1954, there were two things written down. One is none of CERN's use Outputs will be used for military applications because it was after World War II and we had nuclear in our title, so no military applications ever. Second, all the outputs of CERN will be used for general, generally available for everyone. So those are two, one of many, two of the many founding principles. Um, so with that, we wanted to make sure how we can create impact outside of CERN because high energy physics is only for, done for the purpose of understanding. To, to increase the knowledge of humankind. So naturally it had applications outside, medical applications where medical imaging was a, a natural one, where you know, positron emitron, uh, positron M L PET, I'll get to it, positron electron tomography was a natural use. A lot of you know, um, uh, crystals and magnets that were used for imaging, PET, CT scan, et cetera. That was a natural involvement we were involved a lot with. Um, and, and after that, you know, uh, computing became became a new uh, need in the industry, so a lot of research were done at CERN that moved outside. So our purpose was to have impact outside of high energy physics and give this knowledge to people who can make our lives better. Then startups became um, a missing um, uh, point that we were not having impact on. People were disrupting a lot, and we were still working with large companies. Then we started more focusing on startups. So we have a network of business incubation centers who scout for startups and bring it to CERN. We give the technology to them uh, and they can go to market faster. And then second mandate for me is to have a lot more founders coming out of CERN. Um, you know, we have a lot of folks who come for a short duration, two to eight years max, and they leave CERN and we want some of them to go create startups. So that's the overview of CERN in about 10, 10 minutes. So there's a lot of governments demanding we need more spin-offs from research organizations, right? Uh, especially from, from Europe. And um, when you look at CERN, and this is a very specific research organization for a very specific purpose, I can imagine the people working there, they don't choose to work at CERN because they would like to become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have this whole issue on incentivizing. Why should you think about this path at all? Uh, why should you collaborate with a startup, uh, right? S something like you just touched upon. So how do you go about that? How do you raise awareness that uh, one should think about that? How you do, how do you get those people, how, all these smart scientists to, to think about entrepreneurship and collaborating with startups? 
Uh, and totally, I mean, that's the challenge and the opportunity, if I think about it, right? So one, um, the first part of it is, yes, it's, uh, it's uh, so this is my fourth continent I'm working in. And I can tell you across all four continents, US, North America, Australia, Asia and India, and now Europe, uh, it's the common theme that, you know, you want um, uh, practical applications of research because it's hard to understand technology, whereas if you can count number of startups, it's much easier. Um, and, and so, and people do that. And I've nothing against it, but it's also a problem of quantity versus quality. If somebody says, oh, look, you know. By the way. Yeah. <laughs> How many do you do per year at CERN? Yeah, there you go. I knew that the question was coming. Um, so we are in our business incubator. We've got about total about 40 plus startups. We have about eight startups every year that we support from um, giving the technology. The number of startups created at CERN, it's still not, you know, it, it's uh, one or two that come out. Uh, and so we, I want to change that to about five or 10 this year. And so we have a lot of projects that have been incubated. At least the first cohort will be about seven, I'm hoping, end of year. Um, but for me, the, the problem happens is um, every local ecosystem is different. And, we, and every country tries to copy something that happens outside of um, the area and tries to replicate it, right? And, and that's where I see the issue as. For example, um, in Australia, um, uh, they tried to do something called a Silicon Beach. I mean, it was a good program, don't, don't get me wrong, but it was all homage to Silicon Valley, right? Um, if you copy something from US, copy everything. If you just do the aesthetics of it, the problem, you know, I always say that as, um, if you wear a black turtleneck and a jeans, you don't become Steve Jobs. There's a lot behind it. There's a persona. There is the genius behind it, what he's done before, that the turtleneck and the jeans was the symbol not because everybody was a turtleneck will become a Steve Jobs. And it's kind of similar to that. If you, if you, for example, DARPA program has been replicated globally, right? DARPA works because of the program managers. They get four, five-year terms, so they're not looking at, uh, you know, a career progression. There is opacity on what they fund. So the Congress doesn't get involved in how much funding it goes. They got full freedom to do it. So... DARPA works because those 100 program managers are phenomenally vested to make those technological innovations, and then startups come out of it. So that's not the main goal of it. Um, I think I digressed quite a bit. I'll come back to the point. Um, where I see the difference in ecosystems, how to get research labs think more about startups, the two, and where does the tech transfer fit in the middle? Um, Research institutes and universities and labs have policies across conflict of interest, uh, startup policy, spin-off IP policy, all of that. That works about 80 to 90% of the cohort, i.e. people who would do their research focused on publications and academic career. They would look at the conflict of interest policy or a startup policy and say, oh, I'm fine with it because it doesn't apply to me. But the 10% of the folks who are entrepreneurial, those policies won't work for them. Right. But if I look at it from an institution perspective, that is a good policy because it works for 90 percent of the people. But if I look at it from an entrepreneur's perspective, that policy doesn't apply to me. Right. And so if, when you mix those two and research institutes also say you can't 
do two hats together, be a startup founder and work at the same research lab because of conflict of interest, then they'll have to make a decision to stay in or get out, right? And if they get out, those policies are mute because you're an ex-employee. You don't have any right to tell me what to do anymore, right? And so this is quintessentially trying to fit, you know, a square peg in a round hole. Never will fit and that'll create friction, right? So the tech transfer is kind of that adapter, if you want to call, where you fit that round hole, have an adapter to fit into the university policy. So you're kind of playing both sides to fit something that'll work. And just because the 10% of the folks are doing startups, it's not a big number to fight. Um, but if it gets to a lot more, then your policy should reflect it. And I don't think that is universally reflected except at a few places. Um, and I hope there is a standardization of how and good practices shared among our research institutes to change this mentality. This is probably an ongoing discussion at many research organizations. If researchers spin off companies, are they allowed to take shares while staying inside the research organization? Do they need to leave into the spin-off and join the founding team? So what kind of best practices have you seen around the globe? How to take care of that issue? And what kind of policies have you seen um, as good practices? So th this is my personal opinion. And I guess the disclaimer is it's not sun. So it's my personal opinion. Um, look, there, there is there are two parts to it. One is, you know, some where the, the the research institutes have to make a call to saying, what's your risk parameters, risk tolerance, right? So I always start with, what if the researcher has an equity in it? So what? If the researcher has that hat as a startup founder and research, so what? What are we worried about that will impact? Oh, there's conflict of interest. What if the research lab and the company shares IP? Take equity in the company so that it's actually, you know that there is a separation. Put a wall so that you know where, where is what. If the IP does leak into it, so what? You've got equity in that company so that the valuation reflects what new IP goes into it, right? And so the, my first issue, I think, rather than good practices, understanding where the issue comes in is from, it's a blanket fear of conflict of interest. It's a blanket fear of, oh my God, this you know sky is falling down if this person does this. And the other extreme is that, What if all the researchers do startups? Then it's, you know, nobody will be doing research. That's the extreme case that I've heard, right? And so, so the fundamental pro issue is to address what do you want? How much do you want? How do you enable this? And then the rest falls into place from an institutional policy perspective. From a researcher perspective, it's also that, you know, it's not universal. I've, I've seen amazing founders who are professors. I learned a lot from people who have been doing that for, you know, seven, eight exits, still professors because they love the teaching part. They love the research part. You want more people like that in the universities and research labs to, to inspire the next generation. So it is the research institute should think it as an incentive to keep them rather than get them out, right? Um, you know, I, I spoke to somebody from EPFL One of the VM uh, virtual machine founder, VMware founders, is still at EPFL, and he gives a lot back to the community, right? And so for me, that's like a wish list. I wish um, I have got a lot more founders to showcase because I strongly believe representation matters, right? You see people go the journey saying, "Oh, I can do it." He looks exactly like me. His qualifications are exactly like me. He did a startup, so I can do that too. That is missing. So at CERN, we did a whole series of 
our alumni uh, who have actually been startup founders to come and talk about their founders, founder experience, right? Um, that does a lot of magic. I got people out of the woodwork coming and saying, I've been putting this away for two years. Can I talk now? So that helps. Um, spotlight on entrepreneurs who've gone the journey, not only have been successful, but failed too. So that it's okay to know that you can fail because we always showcase only on the successes. Um, anyway, I'm going on a tangent. No, very true. And I think there's quite some good research on regional startup ecosystems as well that evolved exactly the way you described it, right? There's uh, by chance maybe someone who becomes a successful entrepreneur and he is not uh, or she is not buying an island uh, and then uh, <laughs> taking some time off there, although this might be a good choice as well. But basically those folks are getting back to the ecosystem and they help to generate and support the next generation with their money. Money, but also with their network, with their expertise, uh, and building upon that, you, you get this virtuous cycle, right? Uh, and this way, good ecosystems uh, are established in the future. And I think something could also happen around research organization mm -hmm. if you do it the right way. Mm -hmm. and, and look, uh, for me, Australia was a very, very um, infant uh, uh, startup ecosystem 10 years back, right? There were not many unicorns out. Um, and, and so that was uh, starting out to be, a, um, you know, startups were just starting out and new venture capital firms were coming up. Now, if I look back, companies like Atlassian, they, they listed on IPO, but they're a software company, right? And what I was fearing was they'll invest only in, in software startups, not necessarily uh, branching out. They've invested in a new company which does, or they have their fund, the founders have their fund, act as the, uh, angels to one which has come out of a research lab for a new generation of uh, wireless uh, uh, chipsets. Uh, they put a billion dollars to build a massive uh, a solar farm that will produce electricity in Australia and sell it to Singapore with an underground cable. So those, I, I, that, that is super promising because now you're reinvesting that money, that your success into not only the uh, software systems that you know, but in other techs. That, that are around, right? Um, for me, I, 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 I'm hoping to see a lot more of that in Europe, to be honest. Um, there's pockets of exits and happening within the software world, but they reinvest in only the software part of the, uh, the scene. Yeah, although this probably takes time, uh, and I think most people would agree that the US is still one of the most mature ecosystems, also when it comes to, to tech transfer. Uh, what what do you think? Uh, what what is the reason for this, this majority? Why is there is there more expertise, more uh, experienced entrepreneurs, better TTOs? Um, what do you think? What what's the reason for that? Um, look. Um, I'll, I'll give you the first disclaimer. Um, one of the my pet peeves is generalizations, right? Because I always used to get generalized as an Indian, right? So that's one in 1.366 billion people, right? Um, so if you assume 10%, if you assume 10% of the Indian uh, uh, community is amazing, that's 136.6 million people. And my joke in Australia was that's 5x Australia's population altogether. So with that disclaimer, um, some of the generalizations which I follow are, you know, just generalizations, which are based on some of my experience. Um, what I loved about the U.S. ecosystem is, you know, um, the, the system existed quite for some time. People are mature enough that there are some good practices that has come through across the whole tech transfer system, right? 
So Bard Oil Act was the one that gave the universities to own IP. Stanford MIT has been doing from the 70s, but then they've got enough of case examples to saying this is how it will work better. And so then ecosystems from the Silicon Valley moved to you know Austin, New York. And so there's pockets of brilliance, but that's not a universal thing across US as well. Um, Australia, as I said, is a very young system, but it's maturing. But the beauty of Australia is that since it's geographically isolated, startups start with global mindset from day one. You can't think of Australia as the only market. That's 25 million people. You can't sell or grow and scale at that pace. So day one, they try to sell outside. And if I look at the American startup ecosystem, that's the best amazing sales mindset I've ever seen. If I look at the pitch that is coming from the US, the founders, amazing sales one. On the other side, Australians, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. So it's more self-deprecation, don't show off, right? And so the same Steve Jobs analogy applies here. Don't try, everybody try to be a US startup ecosystem. What works for your regional area has to be something unique. If I ask somebody from a French ecosystem, try to be the US one, that won't work, right? And so, um, and so everybody wants to be Silicon Valley, right? But nobody understands the whole Silicon Valley um, history, but they just want the top level of saying, oh, unicorns, I want unicorns. And mm, it, it, there's a lot, a lot of things that goes behind it. You know, I personally prefer the strengths and the strength approach. And every single ecosystem has its unique capabilities, strengths and weaknesses. And what we definitely don't find in Europe too often is an entrepreneurial mindset inside and outside the research organizations. So what happens is that most institutions try to compensate for this lack of mindset with very sophisticated and advanced programs, methodologies and processes. And this is exactly how we built the AHEAD program at Fraunhofer as well. And at the same time, I'm wondering whether maybe that's the strength of the ecosystem, that people are very good at thinking in terms of processes, how you get from A to B and how to optimize that way that we need this kind of very sophisticated programs in order to be successful at entrepreneurship and spinning off companies. But at the same time, I also think that you cannot turn magically a smart and very good researcher into a very good entrepreneur. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Sarsen, you actually asked me this question twice so far, right? About the template and the process. I've kind of skirted around the question, you know, until the last 34 minutes. And the primary reason is I'm not a huge believer in a template, right? If a template and a cookie cutter system works, I I wouldn't have a job. And most people in the startup ecosystem saying, here's the formula, step one, two, three, four, voila, you get a unicorn. Um, and that's probably where the mindset issue comes in from, you know, not only Europe, most places is, this particular research organization spits out 500 startups. Why are you having only five, right? And, and so um, where it is an, you know, an objective number, people forget to ask the next question, how many failed? How many are doing well? What is the impact of these 500 startups, right? And so for me, the template process leads to that thinking to saying, check out more startups, put some entrepreneurship magic on top and startups just proud right um and, and and the other issue for me is also people making a lot of the decisions have never been a startup founder doesn't understand what it takes to go through the journey right and and some of this startup 
talk which is actually done more disservices yeah fail fast failing is okay personal experience failing sucks i don't want to fail i don't want to fail again right it's good to talk about failure when you succeed but when you're going through it that's the worst thing right so for me founder empathy is the key thing if you understand somebody is quitting their job and doing this risking everything then the whole mindset changes on how you support them um and and that's key for supporting founders coming out of research lab is saying that this person has worked 10 years to get the degree being a postdoc doing this they're going to make a switch to try this then if that empathy stands there and saying how can i help you rather than saying i can't let you do this because the ip ownership is an issue i think there is that needs to change mindset across not europe everywhere Yes exactly and the situation that we both see is that is less about supporting those who want to take the risk go out there and build a startup but it's more about how do we increase the number and so let's build this production line that defines an input an output a process in between and so we can just get better numbers Look I I agree completely because one of the questions I asked was recently was can we showcase the percentage increase of number of startups CERN has supported right year on year now I'd say it'll be 0% because 2019 I had eight startups 2020 I had eight startups so if I look at that comparison it's 0% increase but that number doesn't showcase anything what it showcases is eight 16 startups where the ones that we we supported in the last two years why should it be a percentage increase rather than looking at 16 potential startups in uh, in europe are using cern technology so there is that mindset of growth that needs to happen that number of startups has to keep increasing um yes and, and we both share the view that most research organizations are measured by or measure themselves in in terms of the sheer number of startups that they are producing but i think we both share the understanding that it should also be about the quality about the impact about about what whatever criteria that also help us to assess whether this is a good spin off and whether there's really a contribution to the ecosystem and to society and the environment and of course also economy wise like so let let me phrase this initially right so one of my mentors when i started out said um when you just tell me problems it's complaining and when you give me a problem and a solution it becomes a strategy so with that uh, this is not a strategy this is complaining right um because there's no silver bullet that you know i've thought of or anybody else has thought up but it's a revolutionary process going on um the problem with with, with subjective uh, or qualitative analysis of startups is that quality is subjective what you might think is an amazing startup i might think oh you know uh, for example if if you are a unicorn with a billion dollar valuation in the us you look at coinbase and saying oh they're a 100 billion dollar company so you're not good enough qualitatively so where does that line stop and so that needs to have a discussion but i think there's a step before that in my opinion to saying why does the qualitative or quantity is a metric as to measure right if 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 and then that's that's again you know a loop x number of startups x number go raise money x number get exit and so is that the loop that you want to measure or to saying how much of technologies you actually have are going to the market right what research output did it go out so for me there's more 
an issue of lack of storytelling that tells you about why what you're doing is actually creating impact outside rather than to saying um, unit metrics, uh, to saying 10 startups came out. Okay, good, 10 is a great number. Or I've got 100 startups, 100 is a great number. Why are you not getting 100? So that's that constant loop because A, people who are looking at the numbers don't understand the startup ecosystem. So you're kind of feeding the same numbers to keep happy. Um, For that to break from the system, it has to be a top-down approach to saying that the numbers don't matter. I just want research output going out. Um, And, and, you know, for example, the same metrics were applied to research funding, right? When government spent on fundamental research, what was the metric output or number of publications? And then the journal publications got fed in. So whatever metric you're going to put, you're going to have an unintended consequences of what's going to be the output. Um, so the way to measure it is still uh, an issue unless otherwise you're fighting for funding to keep alive the tech transfer office, then you have to have numbers. Um, and, and so if it is built into saying this is fundamentally going to be part of the ethos of transferring research from lab to outside, it doesn't matter if you get one startup or you get 10. Um, so that's where I think the measuring of startups also has a lot of underlying input issues that come in. How many invention disclosures do you get? Are they good quality invention disclosures? In one year, if I get 20, and if I get only five startups, then it's a failure because the other 15 good technology disclosures didn't become startups. So, um, so, you know, it's that iceberg picture that we've always saw and the tip is that 10 startups, but there's a lot of it underneath to get to the top. Um, and, and and that needs to be um, one. Second whinge complaint is um, there are people who are really good at startups, i.e. Y Combinators of the world, uh, Techstar, Station F. Their core expertise is startups, right? And so I feel it's, you know, their numbers are the ones which look fantastic or billions of dollars in valuation. So that's kind of copied back to the university system and saying, why are we not like Y Combinator? That's like asking an elephant to climb a tree and saying, you're not climbing the tree well, right? And and, and for, for me, it's more how much of that research input is actually transferring to a product. And that applies to applied research institutions. Other ones, like, for example, Sun, we have, you know, all our systems are open source software. So if a company is using that software, they don't even actually have to tell us that they're using it. That's the ethos of open source, that it's available for everyone to use and play with. And so if I have to go and say, which company is using it, then I have to put a block into saying, if you have to use it, you have to come tell me that you're using it, which is actually stopping them using it. So if I have to put a measure, then it comes with a control as well, which is kind of impeding CERN's mission. So we, we give a lot of it for free. I mean, starting from the World Wide Web, we haven't stopped that. Which is a very different approach, and right? And also the fact that you that you don't have patents, and uh, this is something which is a very specific situation. Um, and I would like to understand from you also personally, because you used the term impact, I think, twice uh, already. And I think it is about impact, but also a very subjective term. Is it the social environmental impact, the, the number of jobs you're creating and, and stuff like that? So you personally, what kind of 
spin-offs would you like to see in the future and where do you see like the whole tech transfer system is, is heading right so i can talk more from the sun's perspective for a minute we do have patents we but not compared to the university so our patent family is about 47 patents when you compare it to a university they file that in a month so we are we don't file that much so that, that's correct um so for me you know the impact again it's a very um, overused term, just like innovation is. Um, and, and it comes down for me to saying, um, I'll give you an example of one of our spinoffs doing great stuff, right? So there's a company called Orvium. Uh, it's a CERN spinoff. They are disrupting the whole scientific journal world, right? So if you look at the scientific publications, academics produce the content, academics review it, somebody publishes in a journal, the journal owners will ask you to pay $32 to download the same PDF copy, right? And, and so that for me is not a great system that exists. And you know, all the universities are now banding to make sure there is an open uh, journal system. So they built an entire system to have journals manage it better, academics get more publication, it's not a, you know, uh, and so for me, they would create a lot more impact when they're successful because it'll change the world how scientific journal publications are handled, right? And, and so, um, so for me, how do I measure impact? Are you changing the way that our current life is um, with something that's not incremental, right? Not saying incremental startups are bad, but from me, from a research institute, uh, I I don't. I don't see impact as me to startups. I see impact as stuff which has come up with the next laser, which comes with the next computer, quantum computing models. Um, so who questions the existing dogma and changes things, right? Um, I mean, I, I, this triggered me another thought, um, which was on Silicon Valley, right? Um, I often ask people, why is it called Silicon Valley? Where does the Silicon part come from, right? And And... Not, for me, it's because um, when I started out and I spent a rabbit hole of time in uh, understanding this, it all started by you know a guy called Arthur Rock, uh, who was a venture capitalist, who got eight people working for Shockley Semiconductors who were so pissed off with William Shockley, the Nobel laureate who invented transistor because he was an authoritative boss. They couldn't work with him. They wrote a letter to this bank saying that we are eight employees who are frustrated Rather than all of us getting a job separately, it'll be better for the employer if they get all eight of us together. And this ended up at Arthur Rock. Um, you know, he, he was a venture capitalist um, um, and he founded them and that became uh, Fairchild Semiconductors. And from there, you know, you the rest is history. Uh, Eugene Kleiner set up KPCB as a venture firm. Don Valentin, who's one of the best VCs, um, he went and said, found Sequoia out of it. I mean, the best is, you know, Bob Noyce and Gordon uh, Moore create Intel. So all of that comes from this one group of eight people who were pissed off with their boss and setting up a company. And that led to the revolution of, uh, of, of semiconductor. And that's where the Silicon Valley name tag comes from, Silicon Valley. And they started in the 60s. In a way, my hope is that I find those eight people frustrated at CERN and they can create another old ecosystem. So that's, um, in a way, if you ask my wish list, I'm finding for that, uh, the, tra uh, the traitorous eight. Um. 
Good luck. I, I think you will find them ultimately. Uh, so <laughs> there's also some great people working at, at CERN, definitely. Um, okay, so looking into the future and the landscape uh, that we are both seeing there, what are the technologies that excite you most? Uh, what are the developments and what we see inside the labs where I say this is going to change the world? Um, look, so for me, looking in future, what I'm super excited and I hope I, I'm alive to see, uh, you know, see it is when it comes to quantum computing, right? Um, in a way, I, you know, I look at it and saying when, when the transistors were invented, nobody saw computers could change everything. And I think quantum is exactly that space because everything that we know and operate like, you know, RSA algorithm, security, computation, everything is based on a classical computer. Uh, the quantum will disrupt it. I was always on the edge on, you know, on the fence thing. Uh, quantum is still too futuristic. Um, but where things are developing now, you know, for me, I used to work for Honeywell. Honeywell has its own quantum computing budget now, or they've, they've got a product out, which means it's going to be soon mainstream. So I am super excited about that. I think that would be the cusp of a lot of changes happening. Um, and, and then for me, another part is, which I'm... Um, really excited about is the whole concept of decentralization uh, with, you know, not necessarily the, the cryptocurrencies of trading, but more on where uh, the blockchain smart contracts will change a lot of the ways that we do, where we still rely on a central part to authenticate um, where, where the control relies on one authority to, 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 to control it. So those two I'm super excited about. Um, from quantum perspective, CERN does a lot of work. I mean, so if I look at tech transfer from CERN, um, quantum is the one that suddenly has lit up a lot of our expertise, right? So we, we do cryogenics, we do ultra high vacuum systems, valves, flanges, power controls to main, manage that ultra high vacuum systems. That naturally never had an application outside of CERN. Nobody else wants to cool to 1.9 uh, Kelvin. And now these guys want to do it right, to trap ions, to study that. And it also has got a lot of use within CERN for the next computing requirements for CERN with the FCC. So this naturally suddenly has a lot more interest and expertise at CERN too. So that I'm super excited about. And maybe it takes as long as with lasers until we see all these applications that are really changing the world. Although when we look at the pace of change today, right, maybe it's happening way faster than we can imagine. Uh, but I, do, I agree, Quantum, of course, uh, will have a huge impact uh, and all the blockchain revolution coming, uh, cryptocurrency aside, but uh, the decentralization, uh, smart contracts and so on and so forth. We're already seeing that happening. Thank you, Ash. Yeah, thank this you. was a great conversation. I'll thank you very much for your time. Uh, lovely, awesome to talk with you. And, you know, I find this actually as a, as a release. A lot of this has been in my head and talking. And so when, when you invited, it was good for me that it was actually a release where I can, you know, do the verbal uh, vomit. So uh, thank you for having me. It's, it's kind of been therapy. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'm also very, uh, yeah, good that I could uh, contribute to that as well. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, have a great day and, and talk soon. Yeah, lovely. Oh, bye, Ash. Cheers.